This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Unless your ancestors all originated in Africa, chances are you are part Neanderthal, something like 2% to be precise, though that number varies a bit depending on whether you're genetically more European or East Asian or Australian. So how did this happen? Up to 100,000 years ago, ancestors of modern humans encountered Neanderthals in Europe and for thousands of years inbred with them. At the end of the day, Neanderthals went extinct while early humans took over the world. But for those billions of you who still carry around that Neanderthal DNA, what does it contribute to whom you are now? Well, just this week, researchers announced stronger evidence for connections between Neanderthal genes and everything from sleeping habits to skin and hair tone. And now a new sequencing of a 52,000-year-old fossil has given researchers even more Neanderthal DNA to link to us. Research published in Science This Week says the new fragments, when compared to modern human genes, indicate that we're even more related to Neanderthals than we thought, that 2% might actually be as high as 2.6%. Here to talk about that with us is one of the study's author, Svante Pabo, a geneticist with the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany. Welcome back, Dr. Pabo. Uh, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Nice to have you. How many people are descendants of Neanderthals then? Well, so everybody whose genetic roots are outside Africa are partly descended from Neanderthals. So there are billions of people in the order of six, seven billion people who actually carry parts of the genome of Neanderthals today. And how did, how did we come to that uh, 2% number and then raising it? Well, so um, back in 2014, we published a high-quality Neanderthal genome, but that genome came from southern Siberia, so very far east in the distribution of Neanderthals. So we were, of course, aware that that genome was not really close geographically to where Neanderthals probably met early modern humans when they came out of Africa. So what we have now done is to sequence a genome from southern Europe, from Croatia, that is also closer in time to when that interbreeding might have happened. It's between 50 to 65,000 years old. And indeed, we can show that this individual from which this genome comes was quite substantially closer related to the Neanderthals that interbred with modern humans than the Siberian one. And that results in that we can identify more pieces, more fragments of DNA in people today that come from Neanderthals in the order of 10, 15% more than we had earlier. That's in the order of 4 million more base pairs per individual Mm. that we identify. So this 52,000-year-old Neanderthal woman from Croatia, and what we know from her genes, do, do we know that the Neanderthals might be contributing to maybe bad cholesterol numbers that we have or any other kind of diseases or illnesses? Uh, yes, indeed. So among the genetic variants we now discovered using this new genome is, for example, a variant that contributes to high LDL cholesterol. So that's a bad cholesterol. Increases your risk of having that. There are also, one should say, genetic variants that come from the Neanderthals that will protect you from certain problems. So there is, for example, a variant here that decreases
the other hand, there are others, and it increases your risk for accumulating visceral fat, for example. So it's a mixed bag of things that we would regard as good and bad that we got from the Neanderthals. Hmm. Are, are we more interested then in the Neanderthals because we want to know about them or because what they can tell us about who we are? Well, I would say that I would be interested in both things. Of course, it is quite interesting to know what aspects of our physiology today derive from Neanderthals, in what ways do they live on in us, if you like. But these variants may also allow us, at least in the future, to tell us more about what they were like. So, so how is it that uh, just two genetic sequences, we're talking about two Neanderthals now, tell us mm-hmm. so much about a whole species of hominid? Well, um, of course, that is because when you have a whole genome from an individual, you have, of course, two, two versions of that genome, the version that individual inherited from the mother and from the father. So we when we are sequenced to high quality now, so we see both chromosomes in an individual, we have four genomes in reality. And we can then get a fairly good idea, particularly when they come from different parts of the distribution, uh, geographic distribution like this, of the variation in the species. Mm -hmm. How come you were able to get such a good, high-quality sequence? Well, so we have looked through a lot of bones. So from this site in, in Croatia, this cave, we have analyzed 19 different bone fragments to identify the ones that have the most Neanderthal DNA, but at the same time, the lowest proportion of bacterial DNA in the bone from soil bacteria that lived in a bone when it was in the ground. So this particular bone, there were parts of it that up to 10% of the DNA actually were of Neanderthal origin. And then we use techniques that we have developed in our lab over, over 20 years now to extract as efficiently as possible the DNA, process it in a way that we can feed it into sequencing machines, and then map it to the human genome, see where these short fragments we get will mm-hmm. fit in the genome. There was other research published this week by a couple of your colleagues detailing some of the other ways that uh, Neanderthal genes may be affecting who we are, like our sleep habits and anxiety and even our skin and hair tone. How did they figure this out? Yes, so that is work by Janet Kelso's group in our institute. And they took advantage of a huge, huge study in the U.K., the U.K., so-called U.K. Biobank, and where there is now data available for over 100,000 individuals on many, many traits in these individuals, such as sleep habits, skin tone, etc., etc. And there is also genomic data for the entire genomes from these individuals. So we're then, they were then able to look for statistical associations between certain Neanderthal DNA fragments and certain features in for example, your skin pigmentation or your sleep patterns. Mm-hmm. And they find a very sort of mixed picture, actually. They find that, indeed, the Neanderthal contributions are particularly prevalent when we look at skin pigmentation. Over half of the strong associations they find is to skin pigmentation. But those variants go in different 
directions. So there are some variants that make you more pale and more susceptible to get sunburn, but there are also other variants that make you more darkly pigmented to protect you against sun. So the conclusion of that, or a logical conclusion of that, is that actually Neanderthals varied, just as we do, varied in their skin pigmentation, and different people have inherited different variants mm-hmm. from them. Does anything new in the, these, uh, the, these genomes, do they offer any clue about why the Neanderthals died out, but we survived? Um, no, and I think there would be no clue in the Neanderthal genomes about that, I would say. I would say the clue to that lies in our genomes, in the modern human genomes, because what is so striking with modern humans is that we appear on the scene and expand in size, become hundreds of thousands, millions, and eventually billions of people, and compete with our close relatives, and they lose that competition. So sometimes I say, for example, say orangutans today are approaching extinction, but that's not due to some problem in their genome. It's due to our genome that makes mm-hmm. us cut down the forest, hunt, Dr. Dr. Pabo, what are you working on now? Do you have anything in the pipeline that you're sequencing? So one direction is to try to go back further in time. So the oldest sort of hominin remains we've been able to get tiny amounts of DNA from is over 400,000 years old. That's some early Neanderthal ancestor from Spain. So we're trying to get more DNA there. And the other direction is to try to understand What's special about modern human genomes? What are those variants that made it possible for us and not the Neanderthals to develop technology and culture that allowed us to expand and colonize the whole world and compete mm-hmm. so successfully and detrimentally for, in the, from the point of view of these other hominins that became extinct? What would be the, the perfect fossil, your dream fossil find, if you could have one? Well, one dream would actually be to find a Neanderthal in the permafrost, and maybe that will even happen one day. That sort of is the best way to preserve uh, DNA. But short of that, it's a fossil that is sort of under dry conditions with very little bacterial growth after the dead, death of the individual. So a lo- large proportion of the DNA is actually from the Neanderthal. But you think there could be a Neanderthal in the permafrost someplace waiting to be discovered? That is, cannot be excluded. And in fact, as the permafrost is now melting due to climate change, chances are that maybe one will one day find a Neanderthal in the permafrost. Well, I can't, uh, I can't get any, you know, better than asking that, getting that answer from you. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, well, we all hope, you know, maybe there is a silver lining to global warming right there. Yes, there's one good thing about it, then. <laughs> Svante Pabo, geneticist with the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany. Thank you for, for staying up late and taking time to be with us today. Good luck in your search. Hope your dreams do come true. After the break, they uh, roam far and wide over the western valleys and ranges, and their numbers have grown so high our government is struggling to manage them. It's the story of the mighty Mustang. 75,000 wild horses, Mustangs, are out there, 
And it's a real problem, uh, spending billions of dollars managing them. We'll, we'll have all the details after the break, so stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. Now, if you're like me, you probably learned in school that horses first galloped across our continent when the conquistadors brought them across the Atlantic on their ships, right? Well, that's true, sort of, because the other part of the story is that horses, horses some as small as a dog, have been on this continent much longer than we have. I mean way longer. The revolutionary origins in North America go back 55 million years. And then around 10,000 years ago, they disappeared, along with a lot of other amazing beasts like mastodons and camels. But when horses set hoof back on this continent and escaped their owners, they ran off into the sunset, as it were, they were remarkably successful at recolonizing their old habit. And today, some 75,000 Mustangs roam the desert valleys and mountain ranges of the American West. And it is a comeback so extraordinary, we don't know how to deal with them. That's the saga. That saga is the subject of a fascinating new book, Wild Horse Country, The History, Myth, and Future of the Mustang. Dave Phillips is the author. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning national correspondent for the New York Times, based in Colorado Springs. He joins us from KRCC today. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, you're welcome. And we actually have an excerpt of your book at sciencefriday.com slash wildhorses. And if you've encountered wild mustangs yourself or you want to weigh in, please give us a call. Our number is 844-724-8255, 844-SCI-TALK, or tweet us at SciFry. You know, Dave, the thing that struck me when I read this book is that wild horses, and as you say, there are tens of thousands of them out there, and they, they, they seem to be forgotten somehow. Nowhere, they don't have the fame of the bison or the grizzlies or any of those animals out west. Well, you know, it's funny. When I uh, first got interested in this subject, I had grown up in the west my entire life, and I was about 25 when I actually learned that there were wild horses, not just a couple you know, a remnant herd, like carefully curated in a, a national park or something, but, but like you said, tens of thousands roaming all over. And, and <laughs> uh, what is even more amazing is there used to be uh, literally millions of wild horses in, in herds that early explorers described as as rivaling the buffalo herds. When they came back to North America, they came back in a, in a very big way. Mm-hmm. And what we have left is just sort of a little vestige of that. But but it is a does pose an interesting problem of, of what we now do to try and preserve them. Well, the question to me, and, and you raised this yourself in the book, is they're out in the remotest desert parts of the country. There's not a lot of green grass to chomp on. How have they survived? Uh, I run no green grass to, to <laughs> chomp on. Let me ask that uh, they, uh, So how, how do they survive is, is pretty amazing. You can go out to these areas, mostly in the Great Basin areas of Nevada, Utah, uh, Idaho, Arizona, and walk around, and it is mostly thorny brush and and bare ground. And yet, uh, hundreds of horses uh, manage to survive out there in these these valleys. Um, and it, it's it's stunning to see. And and I think the answer is is that they evolved to do exactly this. Uh, they are specifically evolved to eat rough, poor forage that that other animals couldn't necessarily thrive on. Uh, and so despite uh, a concerted effort by uh, uh, ranchers and, and the government over decades to get rid of horses, they, they never did. They just retreated into these harshest areas where they mm. 
they've managed to do pretty well. They, they actually developed a very advantageous type of tooth to survive. Tell us about that. Yeah, so so that's interesting. So as you mentioned, the the wild horse started out as something maybe about the size of of a, a small dog back in the early Eocene, um, and at that time the entire globe was forest. Um, and it was a, it was a little browser that would sort of trot around in the forest and eat, eat leaves and shoots. Uh, but then, as as the world cooled and and the forests forest retreated, um, horses kind of made an, an interesting move that allowed them to to thrive. Uh, and that is that they developed a, a a tooth. The fancy name is is hypsodonty. They developed a tooth that sort of keeps growing forever. Um, and the reason they had to do that is that that grass is pretty harsh stuff. Uh, the reason that we as humans don't eat it is because it actually has silica, sand essentially, built right into its cells. And so if you tried to eat it very quickly, you would run out of teeth. Hmm. And a lot of these early browsers did run out of teeth if they tried to, to eat grass, and so they didn't. But the horse and a couple other ungulates uh, did something different. They, they developed this tooth that... The best way to describe it is, is like a mechanical pencil. It is a long tooth that is most of it is deeply embedded in their draw, jaw. But then as it wears down from eating grass, it, it sort of moves up, you know, mm. and new tooth comes out. And, and so they can keep eating this stuff and grinding away the, their teeth for 20, 30 years, which, by the way, is where we get the term uh, long in the tooth. Uh, if oh. if a, uh, the grinding molars of a horse are, are used up. That is long in the tooth, and you know that that horse is not long for this world. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of your book is talking about uh, l- managing the Mustangs and uh, and deficiencies in how these Mustangs are managed. You talk about helicopters swoop down and corral them, and then they're taken away by trucks. And what 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 do you see here? Why, well, so what got you interested the in thing. this? Yes. Uh, so we preserved the the wild horse in uh, the late 60s and early 70s, right when we were preser- preserving all sorts of parts of the national natural environment. That's when the Endangered Species Act and the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act were all created. The wild horse had to have its own law because it can't count as an endangered species because it is introduced. It's not a native. Um, but we... Um, we really identified with the wild horse, and, and let me tell you what I mean. I think that it is probably the most American animal out there. If you think about it, like us, it's an immigrant. Like us, it doesn't have any uh, particularly noble heritage. You know, it's, it's a bunch of ragtag uh, folks who just happen to get uh, kicked out by more respectable <laughs> groups. Um, and because of that, it really became sort of the symbol of, of freedom and a kind of, of low-born nobility that we really think of as ourselves. Okay, so we wanted to preserve that idea, that symbol of our democracy. Uh, and at the same time, we wanted to preserve these animals, which were being rounded up and sent to the slaughterhouse to the point of extinction. And we never have really figured out how to make the idea of the horse as a symbol of freedom and the idea you know, the practical biology of protecting and yet limiting this horse work. And so we've gotten ourselves into this situation where, like you said, we have 75,000 horses now on the range. And by the way, that's about three times as many as, as the government says uh, can be sustained uh, on the, the range that's left to them. We have another 45,000 horses that we've removed through helicopter roundups. 
um, and unable to find anything else to do with them, have put them in, in essentially like government long-term storage, uh, which practically uh, means that we are paying someone in the Midwest a heck of a lot of money, about $50 million a year, to take care of these horses until we figure out what we should do with them. And we've been doing that for about 25 years. Mm-hmm. And so the, so we're just storing the horses until we can figure out what, what to do with them. Why are they rounded up? Why don't we just leave them in the wild? Well, uh, let me tell you, first of all, that this is a, a rather controversial uh, point, and not everyone's going to agree with it. But I'll give you the official line. Um, if we leave too many horses out on the range, they will essentially eat uh, the Western Desert down to dust, they say. Uh, there's no longer the predators that could control uh, these populations in an, any easy way, uh, and therefore we have to round up and remove the excess. Now, for a long time, uh, what the BLM wanted to do is when it, it rounded up horses, it wanted to adopt them out. But it's never been able to find enough people who... Uh, would like to adopt and train a wild horse. Uh, it's not expensive, but it is difficult. Um, and so it's, they're always left essentially with, with a surplus, for lack of a better word. And now they've gotten to a point, they have, they've gotten into this sort of this addict's dilemma where they're now spending so much money on storing horses that they can't uh, invest money in finding alternative means to try and, and manage them which is sort of like uh, not being able to go to rehab because you're spending all your money on heroin. And they have gotten to a point where now they can't even afford to round up horses on the range to try and protect the range. The whole system is kind of ground to a halt. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that 75,000 this year may very well be 95,000 next year and grow at about a 15% rate until it collapses. Mm -hmm. You point out that in other countries, people serve horses for dinner in restaurants, but we wouldn't do that here because they're so iconic. Well, really true. And we are also not the only uh, uh, country with a large wild horse uh, population. Uh, Australia has 500,000 wild horses. They call them Brumbies. Uh, And in fact, there, uh, you are allowed as a citizen, if you're living out in some of these rural cattle ranching areas, to, to shoot them. In fact, the government even in the past has provided pamphlets on how to best do this. But politically here, uh, none of that is, is r- really viable. So are we just basically stuck in a political gridlock on this? Well, we've been, that is, that's been the case uh, pretty much since they have been uh, protected in the 1970s. Um, what I found, though, is, is potentially interesting and, and a neat solution um, is and if if you are a, a land management person who's about to take a sip of this coffee, put it down because I'm going to say something to make you really angry. Uh, I think a, an interesting solution is is mountain lions. Now, when I say this, uh, it instantly marks me as as a, a really naive neophyte in the world of of managing wild horses because for literally generations, uh, the government and all its experts have said not only. Um, are there not any mountain lions around really to do that, but mountain lions couldn't hunt a big wild horse out in the open anyway. So it's a non-starter, move on, this is not Wild Kingdom. But what I found when I was was reporting this book is that I started looking through some of the research literature, and there have been all sorts of biologists out in the field that have gone to study something or other about mountain lions or something or other about wild horses, and their data got 
totally interrupted because way too many mountain lions were eating way too many mountain ho uh, wild horses. Uh, and so the data is there. It's just that there's, there is a, uh, an unwillingness to look at it. And uh, I talk a little bit in the book about how you wouldn't need big numbers of mountain lions to make a huge difference in sustainably managing uh, the horse population. Mm -hmm. Well, there are folks who uh, I asked people who've seen them and are working with them to call in. Let's go to Simone in Phoenix. Hi, Simone. Hi there. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me on. Go ahead. Well, um, there's not really a particular question that I have for you, but um, I was just wondering, you know, if you guys would like some input on how we manage wild horses every day. Do you you, uh, you have wild horses? Where do they come from? Well, so these wild horses are actually owned by all of the public of America, and they are the Salt River Wild Horses, and we are the Salt River Wild Horse Management Group, and I'm the president of the group. So perhaps you've heard of us when... Um, the Forest Service was trying to remove the Salt River Wild Horses approximately two years ago. And um, it was really the public of Arizona who gave them their voice, and which is the reason why we were able to come to solutions with the Forest Service. And that's basically the reason why they are still there today. Hmm. I'm Ira Flato. This is Science Friday from PRI, Public Radio International. Uh, Dave Phillips is with me. He is, he, he is author of uh, wild, well, wild Horse Country. Uh, what, what do you think, Dave? What types of things are you guys doing to control the population and keep it sustainable on the land? So we are a big advocate of um, birth control, which is called PZP. And PZP is the only birth control that does not influence wild horse behavior because we actually oppose anything else that does influence wild horse behavior. So can, can, I, jump in, can I jump in and add a, a little bit more to this? Sure, go ahead. So this is this is really an interesting thing that that um, volunteers have been doing across the West, and it's essentially a, a dart that's given once a year to uh, female horses, and it it uh, it almost acts like a birth control pill, um, uh, and so it's, it's reversible. Like she said, it, it has minimal effect on wild horse behavior. The interesting thing is that the Bureau of Land Management, which which is supposed to manage these horses for the federal agent uh, government. They've been talking about how they're going to turn to using this this fertility control drug for almost 30 years, and they never have. In fact, they're using it less now than they did uh, 10 years ago, and the only reason they're using it at all now is, is because of uh, groups like the group looking at the Salt River Herd um, that essentially volunteer and do it for the government. Uh, this is a really neat solution, and I've seen it work, and, and it's uh, not only better for the horses, uh, hmm. it's better for the taxpayer because you're not stuck with horses that you then have to feed for 30 years that you round it up. Quick question from Ann in Napa, California. Hi, Ann. Hi. Quick. Hello. Go for um, it. I, I just, yeah, I just wanted to make the comment that um, I read um, about two months ago that Trump wants to slaughter all of the um, uh, Mustangs and wild horses that are, you know, um, have been rounded up for adoption, as well as slaughtering all of the remaining wild horses um, that are um, out in the wild. And he's, 
in the proposed upcoming budget, it'll save, I don't know, $10.4 million, supposedly. And he's doing it because of the pressure, again, from the National Cattlemen's Association. Okay, let me, let, let, me get a, we, let me get a comment, because we have to go. What do you think of that, Dave? Have you heard about that? Yeah, this, so this is absolutely uh, correct that there is pressure on uh, the Trump administration to loosen uh, the restrictions on what you can do with horses once they're rounded up. Right now, you cannot buy them and then sell them to a slaughterhouse. I, I think there are proposals uh, in place to, to loosen that up, which has happened in the past. Uh, politically, we'll see if, if that is possible. Uh, there are few members in Congress that would openly uh, vote to slaughter uh, uh, wild horses. So it, it's a matter of whether they could sneak it through or repackage it in a better way. So far, that has not happened in the past several decades, um, at least in big numbers, although there's been constant pressure to, to do so. Mm-hmm. Dave Phillips, uh, great book, Wild Horse Country. Uh, you, you're, it's so easy to read your writing. I, I congratulate you on writing such a very easily read and very interesting book to read. Well, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Uh, you can read an excerpt of the book at sciencefriday.com slash wildhorses, as I say. Really interesting read, something I didn't know about. We're going to take a break, and afterwards, what would you do when you have an illness the medical establishment can't explain to you and really can't handle you? How one woman went from chronic fatigue syndrome to a filmmaker and an advocate She's going to join us, Jennifer Brea, host, uh, host uh, well, she wrote and, wrote and filmed Unrest. It's out there in selected theaters. Jennifer Brea will be with us after the break. Stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. At the age of 28, Jennifer Brea was active, energetic, and pursuing her Ph.D. Then a fever and a mysterious host of symptoms that eventually left her unable to get out of bed. Medical professionals had a variety of diagnoses, from dehydration to the equivalent of a, it's all in your head. So she started filming herself and her symptoms in the hopes of a more meaningful diagnosis. I don't know what I did to myself. I don't think I can get up off the couch. I feel like my brain is misfiring. Sometimes I wouldn't be able to speak. Wow. The doctor would tell me, you're just dehydrated. Everyone gets stressed. Eventually, she figured out she had something, something called ME, myalgic encephalomyelitis, or chronic fatigue syndrome, as it used to be called. And she turned her film project into a full documentary called Unrest. It's about her life and also millions of other people with the same symptoms and lack of answers. She's here with us today. Welcome, Jennifer Brea. Hi, Ira. You know, you talk about how millions of people are they're unnoticed because they're all sick in bed all the time. Yeah, so one of the things about this disease is that it's so deceptive. Um, 25% of us are homebound or bedridden. And those of us who aren't trapped in our homes, you only see us when we feel well. You only see us when we're well enough to be out in public. And so you don't get to see what we live um, inside of our homes and bedrooms um, when Mm -hmm. we're, quote, crashed um, from the disease. Now, most of us have heard of chronic fatigue syndrome. Where does ME come in, the myalgic encephalomyelitis? So that's a really interesting question. It was um, 
this original name for the disease, and that came out of an outbreak that happened in London at a hospital in the 1950s. And they noticed that patients had, many many of them had muscle pain, which is where the myalgia comes from, Mm -hmm. um, and encephalomyelitis, which means inflammation of the brain and spinal cord. And the disease was known to the medical community, but after an outbreak in the U.S. in the 1980s in Incline Village, Nevada, there was this sort of reframe of the disease where people started to think that it was, you know, yuppie flu or perhaps, you know, a case of mass hysteria. And it was out of that time period that the name chronic fatigue syndrome came to be used. And today um, it's more commonly referred to as ME or ME-CFS. What I've also found interesting in, in your journey is how you discovered how many millions more people were in bed like you were. Well, I definitely didn't discover that per se, but I was surprised. I was shocked to find that out um, because I never heard of this disease before I got sick myself. And um, uh, as I was trying to find a diagnosis, I started to go online like so many patients do when they have a hard time getting answers and found that there really were thousands upon thousands of people on social media um, who were sharing their stories and many of whom had been sick for decades Mm-hmm. And and how how does the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, treat it now? What, what do they call it? So there's no FDA-approved treatments, and so most patients have to spend a lot of time kind of wandering the wilderness, trying different treatments, going to doctors and to the handful of experts in the country. And there are off-label drugs that do work. Um, but one of the things that's really key to mention is that for a long time, um, it was thought that the you know standard treatment for this disease were cognitive behavioral therapy and something called graded exercise. And... Um, very recently, just in the last few weeks, the CDC has changed its has changed its recommendations and said, actually, not only is exercise probably not effective in treating this disease, but that it can actually be harmful for many patients and make their disease worse. And so, the exercise idea was um, something that came out of a you know faulty study um, called the PACE trial um, in the UK, and um, that sort of science is crumbling. And this is really good news for patients because even though we don't have um, really effective treatments for the disease, um, it's possible that a lot of disability could be prevented if we could diagnose patients early and help them manage their symptoms by actually staying mm-hmm. within their limits and not encouraging them to exercise and go beyond them. So for a long time, the standard treatment was essentially like giving, you know, advising a diabetic to eat sugar. Um, and that's really what exercise mm. is for us. And so I'm, I'm really grateful that the CDC has updated those recommendations. Tell us what it was like to turn to doctors for help and, and get no answers, like, oh, it's all in your head. I think the thing that was hard for me is that I was studying in a PhD program. I was getting a master's in statistics. And, um, you know, in that sort of more kind of academic science side, you know, we're really used to dealing with ambiguity and uncertainty, and I think understand how hard it is to know anything about the world. And as I was sort of traveling across campus at Harvard and and into the the clinic, I was being told, you know, this is the answer. Um, And the challenge was that if I saw 10 doctors, I got 10 different equally certain Mm -hmm. answers. And frequently I felt like they weren't listening to the symptoms that I was observing and really kind of in some ways valuing the empirics, right, the empirical evidence that every patient brings. And I think um, I was surprised because patients, you know, we don't have the medical training, but we are experts in our own bodies. And and I think the observations that we bring are really important um, to doctors in terms of understanding, 
you know, what it is that we're experiencing and what might, what might be causing it. But you were forced to take things into your own hands, try different things that you show in, in the film, unrest, how many thousands of bottles it looks like are uh, littering. Uh, oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> is this a common thing for ME patients to do on their own? They have to do this on their own. I mean, the the challenge is that there's probably only about 10 doctors in the country that are expert in treating the disease. So when you get diagnosed, if you get diagnosed, and it, it takes an average of five years to find a diagnosis because doctors are not trained in medical school how to diagnose the condition, um, you, you, you generally, you know, most patients don't have access to the specialists. Frequently, you have to fly and travel out of state, and, and most patients, you know, are too sick to even be able to do that, let alone afford to pay for that kind of care. And so we're left kind of wandering in the wilderness, um, you know, hearing anecdotes online, um, trying different things. I have made many impulse buys on Amazon after hearing a supplement work for someone. Um, and I think it's just because when you're that sick, like you're, you're trying everything you can to get better. And, and so you will try everything you hear and, and you will experiment. You know, I've probably tried, you know, 200 different treatments and it's been worth the wandering because I have found things that have worked for me and have had have helped me live a much higher quality of life. But what we really need is science and we need science so we can understand which treatments help people and how to match which patients to which treatments. Mm -hmm. and, and how much money is the government or NIH spending on research? So historically, they've spent about five to six million dollars a year, um, which is really devastating because when you look at how common this disease is, so it affects over a million people in the U.S., which makes it more than twice as common as multiple sclerosis. And when you look at how devastating the disease is in terms of the average level of disability, it's like 75% of patients can't work, 25% homebound or bedridden, um, parity with a disease like tuberculosis or or MS would be about $250 million a year of funding. Mm. So from five to six to 250 is a huge, huge gap, especially after so many decades of neglect. Now, the funding has increased slightly this year to $13 million um, with, the, with the sort of establishment of these new sort of centers of excellence, which are going to be spaces of research and clinical care, which is really exciting, um, except that it is far too slow and far too little. You know, I, I want to be well while I'm still young. And um, I think we're going to need at least 10 times that amount to develop a research field of a size where we can actually have large-scale studies and replicate the evidence that we find. So I, I'm unfortunately, I don't think the NIH is really serious about finding out, um, you know, what's causing this at the speed at which patients need it to save our lives. So you've been forced to, to come up with demonstrations and protests of, of your own. Do you, do, is there, you, 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 you document the millions missing in your film. Is there another one scheduled? Yeah, so we're going to be, um, you know, essentially we're using the film as a tool to organize. And so we're bringing it to communities and we are, are forming, um, you know, really trying to grow that base of, of support and community and, and, and collaboration among patients and allies and caregivers. You know, we, we are going to do everything that it takes to um, bring that awareness and, and put the pressure on the government. The challenge is that every time we go out and we, and we try to protest, um, we crash, you know, we exceed our metabolic limit. So this is this is a, a disease that affects your energy production, and um, patients have a hard time metabolizing glucose. Um, and basically, it means that you know I have a limited bandwidth in which to yeah. use my energy. And there are patients who came out 
you know, last year to our protests in September, who a full year later are not as well as they were the day before they went out. So we need allies and we need to get the word out. And so that's what um, I hope we can do with unrest. Do you have another another protest schedule? In May, yes. In May, we're, we did. We had 25 cities around the world. People came out to, to protest and to rally. Um, and so hopefully this time around in May, it'll be even more. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, people can uh, view a little bit of uh, the film on our website at sciencefriday.com slash unrest. It's a uh, it's 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 an incredibly brave film. It's very touching and a powerful film. And uh, thank you for informing all of us about it, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me here. Yeah, Jennifer Bray, uh, director of Unrest in Los Angeles, talking to us from L.A. And uh, the film is in select theaters across the country. <laughs> That sound means the Science Friday Science Club is back in session, and that is our invitation to go out, do something, learn something, and share it with everybody else. And here to tell us about this month's challenge is Charles Berquist. You know him as our director, but he is also one of the founding members of the Science Club. Good to see you, Charles. Yeah. Let's talk about this month's challenge. So it's really simple. Uh, It's something that everybody can participate in, and it's got one key first step, and that is... Find yourself a neat rock. Uh, that's it. That's it. You find yourself a neat rock. Uh, you know, what's the, a neat rock mean? Y- you know, one one you see one. It's the one. <laughs> it's the one that you, you know probably you've got sitting on the corner of your desk, or maybe it's in your junk drawer. Because at some point you were walking along and you saw this thing and you said, "Whoa, that is cool." I don't know what that is, but that is cool. And you picked it up and you took it home, and now right. it's just kicking around. But we want you to try and find out what is cool about that rock. So uh, take it home, take a quick picture of it, share it with us using the hashtag NeatRock on uh, Instagram, Twitter, or uh, send it into our website. There's directions online. Mm -hmm. And uh, the cool thing is we've got uh, a bunch of our friends at the American Geosciences Institute who have graciously volunteered to help you figure out what is cool about your neat rock. This is Science Friday from PRI, Public Radio International talking with Charles Berquist about finding a neat rock. Now, I already put mine up there. I found, I did exactly what you want. I went through my drawers. I found a really neat rock. It's up there on Instagram. It's up on our website and stuff. And it's not a hard thing to do, you know. Uh, uh, do I need to tell you anything about the rock when I find it, besides where maybe I found it? Or? Sure. And, you know, any information you have about it or observations you can make about it are clearly helpful, right? You know, is it... Is it uh, weathered? Is it smooth? Is it sharp? Is it pointy? Does it look like it's all one thing, or does it look like it's got a lot of different things mixed in there? Uh, is it shiny? Are there? Can you see little facets or crystals or something like that? Those are all bits of information about the rock that will help us tell its story. So, and, and actually, hopefully, this is what I'm hoping about my rock. When I posted it up there, I said, you know, I forgot where I got this or where it came from. Hopefully, because we're crowdsourcing it. Somebody will look at it and say, oh, I know where this came from. Exactly. I mean, the, the goal here is that we are trying to build a virtual rock collection of everybody's cool rocks so that it's not just sitting on your desk. It's sitting on all of our desks, and we can all admire it and learn something about it. Because, you know, rocks are really neat, and they can tell you a lot about the history of both how that particular rock came to be and about the history of the, the Earth itself. You know, did it start out at the bottom of the ocean right. for, for millions of years? Did it come from the bottom of a, in, inside of a volcano? There's all kinds of different 
backstories to that neat rock that uh, we want to share with everybody else. Sort of like a John McPhee idea, Exactly. Right? You, Mr. Rockman. You can be, you can <laughs> rewrite coming into the country all by yourself <laughs> right now with us this, this month on Science Friday Science Club. Again, go out, find a neat rock, right? And find a neat rock. Share it with us on social media, hashtag NeatRock, Instagram or Twitter. If you go to our website at sciencefriday.com slash science club, you can also find some uh, a form that you can submit your picture. Uh, and uh, if you really need to email it to us, you can do that or postal mail us. We even take that. There's one thing we want you not to do, though, right? Yeah. So we don't actually want you to send us physical rocks. Uh, that would be too much. Yeah, I, I mean, the, 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 the Rachel, who opens our mail, would probably uh, not appreciate getting thousands of rocks yeah. sitting on her desk. Um, but, you know, if, if you are a teacher or something, and you, an, an educator, and you say, you know, this is something I want to do. There's a lot of cool things about rocks, but I'm not a geologist. I don't know enough about it. Uh, we've actually got an online webinar set up for a couple weeks from now on Wednesday the 18th at 7 p.m., uh, and some of the our friends at the American Geosciences Institute will help teach teachers how to interpret their students' rock. So that's something wow, else that we're doing great. this week. Yeah. You know, we already get it. It's already working for me. I'm getting people who've looked at my rock. Someone says it's a it's maybe a coprolite. Somebody says it could be a rose rock. All kinds of ideas. I I, I mean, I, I know that I've been seeing traffic already. Somebody uh, earlier during the show was sending in pictures of her fossilized piece of coral. It was really oh, yeah. gorgeous. I, I mean, this, oh, and we want you to be um, be very inclusive in your definition of of what is a rock, right? Uh, some of our friends uh, pointed out that you know if it's if it's something that's in your world and it's not uh, synthesized chemically and it's not something that grew, there's a good chance that it was mined or has some kind of geologic component to it. Uh, mm. So you know, even that gypsum in your wallboard could be your neat rock. Because we all know that the uh, the rocks on top of Mount Everest were once at the bottom of the ocean. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> That's, crazy. That's what we mean when we say that every rock has a story to it, right? Yeah. And you know the uh, the other thing that we want to uh, the part of the reason that we're doing this is I know that you've all been looking for a way to celebrate National Earth Science Week, which is next week. Oh. And so if you want to get in on the ground floor, hashtag Neat Rock sciencefriday.com slash science club and you can participate in our virtual rock collection. Thank you, Charles. Charles Berkowitz is one of the founding members of the Science Friday Science Club. Again, sciencefriday.com slash science club. One last thing before we go. If you've ever wondered why artificial banana flavor tastes nothing like real bananas, well, it turns out it does. Just not a type of banana many of us have tasted. Read the story of that flavorful chemistry at sciencefriday.com slash bananas while you're researching all those rocks. B.J. Liederman, compose our theme music. And if you're like us, we're away. Every day is Science Friday up on the web at sciencefriday.com. Also on Facebook and Twitter, you'll find us uh, everywhere. Have a great weekend. I'm Ira Flato in New York.